I'm Paul Brady, Regional Editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast, Northern Wine Odyssey, part of The Cork Report Podcast Network. Look for us on Spotify, Apple or Google Plus, and more. And joining me today as co-host is my friend and fellow sommelier, Isabella Fitzgerald. You might know her better as Sloppy Som on TikTok. Isabella. Hi. Hi, Paul. Why don't you (laughs) tell the listeners what Sloppy Som is? Um, Well, Sloppy Som has a great history. It's probably where our friendship you know, really blossomed, um, but comes from a Sunday morning tasting group that we were in probably about seven or eight years ago. Um, Orkman, I believe when it started. <laughs> you are correct. And we would get together and we weren't a, a very organized group. That's not where the sloppy part comes in, but we were very free-minded about tasting wine uh, a little less about structure and more about feelings. Um, and I think one day I just walked in and I said, service last night was such a mess. I mean, I dripped on every table. And thus we became Sloppy Psalms as a group. Um, yeah, like the motto, Sloppy Psalm, I drip on every table. <laughs> I drip on every table. Uh, yeah, and that's that's where I came from. So it actually means that Good sommeliers uh, are not perfect. <laughs> no, and it was a good tasting group because I could do things like bring New York wines or Canadian wines, and we were tasting blind, but nobody really like threw any shade at anybody. Like when I would bring those wines to other tasting groups, and I would hear snide remarks behind my back. So it was a very happy place. It was a really happy place, um, and it did join two of my favorite things together which is wine and pop culture, because most of my wine descriptions and feelings, I would relate to pop culture, which is also why I'm probably here on your podcast today as your resident pop culture friend. I think the most famous taste note was something like, yeah, it's like Tay Diggs in a red velvet blazer or something like that. Wow, you nailed it. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it was. Okay, so yeah, today was kind of a cool, a different podcast. Earlier today, we spoke to Melanie Harlow, the best-selling romance novelist, about wine and romance with uh, Valentine's Day coming up. Thought it would be kind of fun to talk about wine and how she writes wine into her novels, essentially using wine as a trope, uh, particularly in Michigan, her home state, also my home state, and as listeners will learn in the uh, next part of the podcast, Melanie Harlow is also my older sister. So it was a very uh, fun and different conversation about wine and wine writing. We talked about how to go from wine journalism or journalism in general to writing fiction and the useful ways to use wine as a trope and things like that. So that was a fun conversation. Uh, So on the subject of Valentine's Day, Isabella, you are are good at selecting wine for people. You're so good at selecting wine for people that you have a new job that you should tell everyone about. Tell us about selecting wine for the folks who buy wine at wine.com. Yeah. So wine.com is this gigantic um, kind of like venture that blew up uh 
due to the pandemic and people staying home, um, people really turned to the internet to get things delivered to them. So I knew Wine.com had been a growing uh, business, but I joined on as a seasonal recommendation specialist, which means during the holiday season, when you go online, there's a little chat box that pops up that is, it is a bot that says, hey, how can I help you? Um, But as soon as you engage with the bot, it turns into a real person. And I found that my experience with Wine.com um, knowing that I'm a real person and that I start talking to somebody is now I've started using live chats on all different kinds of websites because I know they're going to turn into a, a live person. Um, it's been really helpful to me and a little eye-opening. And it's another sector of the wine business that I had no idea existed to the magnitude that it does and the amount of people that I'm talking to concurrently and how many people are also online at the same time as I am working to talk to those chats concurrently is an extremely high number. Um, But I do get to recommend wine. There is a good dose of customer service that happens. So just answering some general questions, but the content is actually keeps me really busy and people ask really smart questions. Um, I think we address this a little bit in the podcast, but wine is a scary conversation for most people because they think they need to know a lot more than they need to know. And they don't really just trust their gut that they do know something. Um, So I like to reassure people that whatever, when they sign on and they say like, I don't really know anything about wine or I don't know anything about wine. It's like, well, great. You're actually even better than somebody who thinks that they know something, um, which could be inaccurate information. So it's been really fun so, to wines for people. Yeah. What what are people drinking? Um, I mean, people drink what is what they know. So a lot of people ask about Sauvignon Blanc or they ask about um, bigger, bolder reds like Cabernet Sauvignon. So the two big Sauvignon family grapes. Um, and I just really like to ask them if they are up for an adventure. Uh, are they open to other things that are similar, uh, because I can do a better price point maybe, or a cool wine, uh, if they're, if they're up for it. And most of the time they are, most of the time people are like, I really just don't know what I'm doing. So please just tell me what to do. And at the end of the chat, they go, great. I put your four recommendations in my cart. Thanks so much. Bye. Or they don't even say bye. They just sign off. Um, And we never really get to see those metrics because we're not on commission and we're not meant to be in a sales position, just a helpful customer service type position. And how did you get this job? Because we like to try to help people who want to work in the wine industry get jobs here at a Northern Wine Odyssey. It is the first job that came up when I said remote wine jobs, and it was available since last summer. So I actually was kicking myself that I didn't start the job earlier. Um, And I'm not really sure why I didn't do it earlier. I think I really had great high hopes as soon as we opened up for 25% in New York City that I was going to be going back um, and that it was only going to go from 25 to 50 and things would get better. I didn't anticipate the step backward that happened with the that wave in the fall in New York City. And that's when I said, I have to do something. Um, 
And the people that trained me were amazing. One of them was from, one of my leads is from Chicago and they worked for a bunch of retail shops in Chicago and also in wine journalism. And um, that was the person who interviewed me. And then the person who trained me used to work at Nolita Wine Merchants and had something happen to them personally where they could no longer go into the shop. And they have been doing these recommendations for three years on the website. So this is not a new position that happened because of the pandemic, but the growth of the company has required the team to grow exponentially. Very good information. A simple Google search can still help you find a job in the wine industry. And people are using a lot of, it's not just wine.com. I mean, Naked Wines or any of these like services where you sign up and you fill out a short questionnaire and then somebody has to pick the wines for you. There is a real person that's doing that. It's not an algorithm because wine doesn't really fit into an, an algorithm. Right on. Okay. Before we transition to the next part of the episode with Melanie Harlow, let's have a quick cat parent corner. Let's give some, some, uh, some tips that we've, learned recently to our fellow cat owners out there. So I have one. Can I start? Yeah. I was going to say, did you just hear, he just came in meowing like a minute or two ago. So I didn't know. No, my, mine's <laughs> running around somewhere like oddly being well-behaved right now. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the comedian Mark Marin, who has a very, very famous podcast called WTF. And Without question, Mark Marin, quite possibly the biggest cat influencer out there right now. If you're not a listener of WTF, uh, Mark Marin is a stand-up comedian of many decades. His podcast is typically him interviewing someone, whether it's a comedian, politician, actor, writer, whoever. Great, great archive of interviews there. And he's he's just a he's a cat man. And I, I gotta, I gotta give it to him. I mean, he is like making it cool to be a cat man. And one of the things that he does now almost every day in the morning is since, since we've been deep into the pandemic, he goes on Instagram live and just like walks around his house talking. Cause that's kind of what he, his style as a comedian, he basically just like talks off the top of his head. But a lot of his Instagram live videos are him following his cat Buster around. Uh, and they're really, really fun and <laughs> humorous and just like it's a good uh a good kind of morning <laughs> fun cat activity. Good morning watch, watching somebody else walk around following their cat. Yep. In the mornings, my cat just follows me around. <laughs> What do you got for, for our other fellow cat parents? What do I got? I mean, I am a renewed cat parent, so I have had a cat pre cats previously in my life, and now I have a new addition um, just very recently in the past few weeks. So this is really my first time having a good memory of like having a kitten. Um, and it's been, it's been, I think the best part is like how much I can Google. I can Google everything I want to know <laughs> about my cat and my kitten's behaviors. And even though each animal is unique, you can kind of paste it all together and figure out, you know, what they're up to or like what they're trying to signal to you, which I think is new. 
before it was like, what do you want cat? And the cat's just meowing or not meowing or ignoring you. And you're just trying to figure it out. Well, again, big shout out to Google, Google helping everybody get wine jobs and raise their cats. Um, I should say this podcast is not sponsored by Google or wine.com, but it would be pretty cool if it was. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's uh, let's uh, jump to the other side now and get into uh, let the listeners get into our conversation with Melanie Harlow. Thank you for co-hosting, Isabella. Let's do it. Isabella Fitzgerald. Hey, Bella. Hey. And our special guest, the USA Today best-selling romance author who happens to be my older sister, Melanie Harlow. Hi. We are going to talk about lots of things today. Uh, among those, Valentine's Day, which is coming up. We're going to talk about your books. We're going to talk about some wines to drink on Valentine's Day. And we're going to talk about uh, the the great state of Michigan, which is, of course, my home state, as well as that of of Melanie's. Isabella, I don't believe has ever been to Michigan, but uh, someday, perhaps. I've never been to Michigan, but I'm I'm looking forward to it, you know? Oh, yeah. You got to come visit. All of my books are set in Michigan, with very few exceptions. Only a couple of exceptions. So before we get into exceptions. And b- before we get into the, talking about how you write wine into your books and things like that, I want to just talk a little bit about how you got your start as a fiction writer. I'll give a little bit of background just to, to, to bring people up to speed. You started your professional career basically as an English teacher, a high school English teacher, where yeah. you were also – Doing things like uh, choreographing the musical, you, yes. you came up uh, <laughs> uh, involved in all of the dance. So you, you're teaching English, you're teaching like theater and drama and Shakespeare and choreographing the musical and all that, uh, and started writing professionally, eventually professionally along the way, dipping your toe in a little bit of journalism. How did you transition to fiction? So I transitioned to fiction. It had always been a dream of mine. You probably remember growing up, I always had my nose in a book. And it was something that I had always wanted to do. And really what made it possible for me to have the career that I do now is uh, the Kindle. So as anyone who's ever wanted to write a book knows, it is very difficult to get an agent. And I first started writing around 2011. I was going to write YA. I wrote a couple books. Um, I had some interests from agents, but no takers. And at the time, I was trying to write historical YA, which I should have known back then. It's really not not the big selling uh, books. But um, I had some friends who were self-publishing romance and having a lot of success with it. So in 2013, that was when I published my first, I took my historical YA, I made the characters a little older, I made the book more romantic, more sexy. 
I had a ball doing it and I self-published it. And then I published a follow-up. So that was in July. And then I published follow-up in, I think, November of 2013. And then starting in 2014, I got smarter and realized contemporary romance was selling much better and switched over to contemporary romance. And that's where I've been ever since. But you you were doing some essentially sort of just like paid gigs writing for newspapers, magazines here and there. So I think probably the first time that you were paid to write something was journalism. Yeah, so it was a local local magazine. And and actually what I um what I was doing at the time was research for that historical book because it was set in the 1920s and the Detroit area has a really fascinating history with prohibition. So I was learning a lot about prohibition in this area and I pitched a story that the editor of this local magazine really liked and that's how I sort of broke in. Isabella, you do lots of artistic things. You create beautiful content all over social media. You are an artist. Have you ever tried writing fiction? Uh, I have, actually. This is your story starts very similar to mine. I like loved, always had my nose in a book. Um, if you looked at any of my journals, it all said I wanted to be a writer. Um, and then I got sucked into the world of wine, is really what happened. Um, but Early on in my wine career, I actually took um, a Gotham writing workshop on fiction specifically because I was always writing nonfiction. Like I was doing more kind of essays. I had art, like authors that I really admired and they were all essayists like Augustine Burroughs or David Sedaris. Um, and when I tried to write fiction, it was always too too realistic. I couldn't kind of jump out of writing about what I knew. Um, so, and I, and I was with other people in that class that were actually very good and had great imaginations and I, I couldn't keep up. So I actually gave up on the fiction train. So I am very in admiration of you, Melanie. <laughs> so <laughs> Thank one, you. Of the, one of the things that we talk a, a lot about on, on this podcast, because sadly uh, many of our peers in the wine industry are unemployed still is going after jobs and just giving pointers and and little tips and things and talking about possibilities for people that they may not have ever even thought of. So lots of wine professionals would like to write. Many of them do write, whether it's you know paid or for a blog, their own blog, or or just kind of writing for free to get a byline out there. Obviously, writing fiction has worked well for you, Melanie. Yes. What was the, what were some of the ways that you were able to transition from those original gigs that were newspapers and magazines, nonfiction, to storytelling and fiction? I mean, I know you were, yes, it's true. You always had your nose in a book, but what, what were the skills that you had to sort of hone? So I'm a big believer. writing or structure or conflict in character. So I just gobbled up a lot of books about how to craft a a good story. 
And luckily, people who are way smarter than me have already figured out what makes a good story, whether you're talking about a three-act structure. I like the to think of it in terms of a three-act structure, but some people write about a five-act or a seven-act. Either way, the bones of a good story are there. And then it just became a matter of taking an idea or maybe even a character or whatever, and, and crafting a story that with the bones of a of good structure beneath it. I think pacing is the most important. Um, I shouldn't say the most important, but it's really important to me. I want a page turner. I want to write a page turner. I like reading page turners. So, and I think structure uh, plays a big role in that. So I would advise anyone who's thinking about writing fiction to do the work in terms of studying story structure, storytelling, and then taking their idea and shaping it um, onto that, onto that mold. So should, should we not be afraid to literally sort of like plug in to the, the model? You know what I'm saying? I always think about that movie, uh, adaptation with Nicolas Cage and Meryl Streep, where he like play Nicolas Cage plays a, a successful screenwriter, and he has a twin brother who's also trying to become a writer, and he takes like a super basic ass screenwriting class and just like writes in as cookie cutter a way as you possibly can, but then like becomes discovered, a- and then his brother, the successful writer, who's like the true artist throughout the whole movie has been like sort of poking fun at him for just going that very formulaic route when sometimes going the formulaic route is really what you need to do in the beginning. It's such Um, a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, that I actually haven't seen adaptation, but I'm laughing at your description of the plot because it makes 100% total sense to me. So there are people who understand that the formula exists. It's there because it works And if you have ever read any books about screenwriters, or I listen to a lot of podcasts about uh, screenwriters and screenplays, because the structure of a good story is the same whether you're telling a joke or you're writing a screenplay or you're writing a novel. Um, It's all, you know, I think there's Brian McDonald has a podcast called You Are a Storyteller, and he sums it up as there's the proposition there's the argument and then there's the conclusion. And I recently bought Jerry Seinfeld's like latest book where he like lets you in on his process for writing jokes. And as I'm looking at Jerry Seinfeld's scribbles, I'm thinking, oh my God, it is, it is the same. He makes a proposition, he gives you the argument, and then he sums it up with a punchline. So and formula gets a bad rap uh, because people think like, oh no, I I need, I'm an artist. Like I can't be confined by these prison bars of structure. And I that doesn't make any sense to me. As someone on that You Are a Storyteller podcast said, it's like thinking that a house would be cooler if you built it without math. Like I, I don't understand why you would want to throw away hundreds and hundreds of years, if not like a thousand years of what we know about how the human brain likes to process stories just to try to be artistic. And that said, if all you want to do is write the book in your heart or just write what's in your heart and it makes you happy, that is, that's wonderful. Go ahead and do that. But if you want to build a career, if you want to make money, then you need to pay attention to 
uh, story structure and what sells. And you need to forget about um, the the idea that, oh, well, but this is just a formula. Uh, throw that away. I don't know if it's too soon in the podcast to bring up TikTok, but you knew I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this is exactly the current phenomenon story of TikTok is you have to be able to do However, like you have to be able to use the formula and get it done in either 15 or 60 seconds. And it doesn't have to be unique or original, but you have to tell the story well and commit somebody to watch you for or your story for 60 seconds. And it could be huge. And I mean, the big a big complaint right now with TikTok content creators is they put most of the story in 60 seconds and then they say, like for part two, and people just won't come back. So being able to do the formula in the time allotted is much more successful than thinking that your story is more important than the entertainment quality of it. That is so yeah. interesting to me. And also, I just want to add on to that, that um, I think people sometimes feel like they have to do something totally new and original and something that no one has ever seen before. And it's almost a waste of your time and energy. People just want to be entertained. Like if you think about a kid who says to his mom every single night, tell me a story, you can tell that kid the story of, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk every single night. And he loves it every single night because it doesn't need to be something new and original and so like radically different that they've never heard it before. It just needs to get you excited about the story. Yes. And that goes back to your page turning. Um, It's the same thing that we make mistakes when we're so eager to share our content. Uh, When I was, you know, like a teenage writer, I thought I was really actually a great writer, but I would get hung up on these on description and that's not page turning. Because if right. I was reading a book with too much description, I was skipping those pages entirely yeah. to try and get back to the conversation, back to the dialogue. Um, yep. It's interesting now, editors who work for traditional publishing houses and also savvy um, self-publishers know you need white space on the page now, more so than you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly more than you did 50 or 100 years ago. Um, people's brains are just... Uh, they're just different now. They've adapted. They want 15 second TikToks, not long pages of description. Exactly. Well, I think there's there's two things, Melanie, that you mentioned uh, that I want to point out. One was constraints. It's good to have constraints. I was uh, listening to a podcast the other day. It was a podcast called The Moment, which is Brian Koppelman, who's a oh, writer, executive that producer of the show Billions. And he was he's also kind of a music guy and he was interviewing the producer, Rick Rubin. And they were getting close to the end of the hour and Rick Rubin made it clear. He's like, I, I have nowhere to be. We can talk for as long as you want. And Koppelman came back and was like, you know, I actually really respect the, 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 the hour. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, I mean, I'm somebody who's endlessly fascinated by Rick Rubin and I would love to hear another hour with him, but... The fact that he kept it to an hour really sort of just makes me want to go back and either listen again or just keep listening to his podcast. So it's a little bit of a page turner effect. Yeah. And then also so what you mentioned earlier was using resources, basically using how-to books mm-hmm. you know, to, mm-hmm. to write fiction. And I think that that's 
something we really can't talk about enough is just taking advantage of resources in whatever it is that you want to do. There are so many resources out there available to us that are free, right? Right, right. Yeah, What's, I mean- uh, but So we can kind of keep moving and start talking about some wine. Anything else you want to you wanna put out there for anybody who would like to try their hand at writing fiction? Certainly it would depend on what genre of fiction that they wanted to write. I mean, romance is really um, at the forefront of self-publishing and there's a lot of successful authors in, in romance, but also I think sci-fi writers, fantasy writers have had great luck with self-publishing. And the beauty of self-publishing is that you know, you don't need an agent. You, you are, um, you have all of the control. That's also a downside. If you're not someone who really loves to make business decisions, it's all coming to you. What the, the packaging, the cover, the blurb, that's the book description, um, the marketing, everything. So if you're someone who really wants to be in charge of everything, if you love the control, self-publishing is a great option. If you're not, you just want to write the books. I, actually, I don't think anyone can just write the books anymore. I think even if you wrote a book and uh, you know Penguin Random House or whatever bought it, you're still going to be expected to do some of the marketing. And if you want to write nonfiction, I think you will be expected to have a platform already, like a popular blog or you're great on TikTok or whatever. Um, but I do want to mention some of my favorite resources right now are um, Save the Cat. All of those books, Save the Cat goes to the movies, Save the Cat writes a novel. It's Blake Snyder's Empire. He passed away, but somebody else sort of picked it up. Um, and I, I really think all of those resources, the Save the Cat website and books are great for learning about structure. Um, it's not free, but it's worth it. The You Are a Storyteller podcast, I really love. That's free. Um, I mean, do you want me to talk any more about resources that that people could use? Or no, um, that's a lot. Okay, I, mean, I think that's that's a lot to to you know to look into for for anybody who listens. Yeah, if they're interested anything, in fiction. Anything? Anything more? Uh, no, no. I think we kind of nailed it. What you said about constraints and keeping it to the hour really just goes back to the nobody wants to like for a part two of a TikTok. So we're going to keep this podcast at an hour too. (laughs) I'm so fascinated by TikTok. I mean, I think I'm too old for it. Like I I have kids that are 12 and 15 and they would probably die if I got on TikTok. But it is the newest, you know, sexiest uh, thing in social media. And authors are just losing their minds, trying to figure out the best way to use it. And so far, it's like just videos of people typing or sort of looking thoughtfully while their book description plays in little text bubbles over their heads. And it's just interesting to me to see where it's going to go. Because as a writer, I mean, writing is kind of a solitary thing, and it's not that interesting to watch. How do you make um, a medium like TikTok, platform like TikTok, work for you? Well, I'm sure maybe you've seen it in your circles. I tried to find it before this podcast, but I did see a romance author do a viral TikTok that was really, really good. It's exactly what you're saying. It's just storytelling. So it's just their face, but you believe that it's their story until the very end and you realize it's just a lead up for the book. 
Um, oh, interesting. So it's sort of author as character. Yes. And I mean, maybe it was maybe it was actually the author or maybe they just uh, borrowed a friend. But the uh-huh. comment section was going crazy that they were hooked into this story and really because people on TikTok want to be involved if something romantic can come of it. They want to ship the couple that they don't know They're They get very, very involved. And so when they did this bait and switch that it wasn't actually about her, it was about the book. It was it was like there was some kind of, you know, sports analogy here where like the touchdown happened and everyone went wild. Like the comment section was in love with this. Particular- do you remember who it was? I tried to find it before we get on here. Um, I'll do another. I'm so curious. After. Yeah. Or if, um, if you want to send it to me afterward, I'm just so curious about good examples of how, you know, TikTok is being used in by authors in the book space. It's, it's interesting to me. It's actually Paul who has kept in the back of my mind that TikTok is the way of future marketing because, uh, you know, Gary V was an early, early supporter. Um, and I'm just your classic millennial who joined during quarantine <laughs> and is now fully invested in what's going on in the TikTok world. Excellent shout out to Gary V. Um, <laughs> So let's uh, let's talk about wine. So so we Isabella and I both read a, an excerpt that that you provided us, which features your your the couple in this yes. particular novel. The hero is a winemaker. Yes, and the heroine's family owns this winery, and she hasn't been living there, but she so she's moving back home. It's sort of a re- return to hometown, fresh start kind of thing. And we're uh, in Northern Michigan, where yes. the sort of most uh, well-known wine region in the state of Michigan. Most people probably don't know that Michigan is kind of a major wine state. Last I checked, it was fifth in terms of wine production. So you have California and Washington, which are the two biggest. New York is three, Oregon is four, and Michigan in terms of uh, wine that are that is made from grapes grown in the state. Last I checked, it was number five. I could be that could have changed. Texas is kind of coming on strong, uh, and and it's sometimes hard to get these new statistics. But Michigan, kind of a major wine state, and Isabella, I know you haven't been there, or but you've had some of the wines, and sure you can sort of picture it as somewhat similar to New York in that this grape growing is possible there because of the the lake effect of the Great Lakes in particular. Lake Michigan, which is where along the west coast of Michigan, this is where the majority of of grapes are grown in the state. And then up in the northwest corner, there's this little pocket of viticulture that is in particular suited well for vinifera grape growing, meaning the European grapes, Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, things like that. So you have in that excerpt that we read, they're having quite a technical conversation about wine. So you have the winemaker who's talking about his job. Essentially, you have the the heroine, can we call her that? Who's yes. sort of asking questions. And again, it, it's quite a technical conversation. He, he's talking about winemaking. He's talking about different techniques uh, that are involved in the craft. How do you decide to have that type of conversation, which might be over the, which is definitely over the heads of most people, but I mean, you did it in a, in a crafty way. 
Yeah, that's the nerdiest wine scene I've ever written, like by far. Most of the time in, in romance books, especially, like people are just sipping a glass of Riesling or whatever. But in this one, I did it because I needed to establish something about the hero, that he was an expert at what he did. One of the ways that characters um, become compelling and likable are uh, you know, by being usually in a romance, obviously they're ridiculously good looking and not buff. Um, but it's by being really good at something. So I wanted to communicate that this guy not only is really good at what he does, he cares about what he's doing, but also that he's really good at explaining it to someone who might not know. So the heroine comes in and even though she's sort of embarrassed that she doesn't really know anything about the process. And so she's the reader, obviously. And he is the expert and he's, as he's telling the heroine about the wine, he's also telling the reader what he does and why he's good at it. Um, and then I had to slip in like the little romantic parts because this is really what we call in the romance world, the meet cute. They had met before, yes, but uh, this is really the scene where they start to appreciate things about one another. <coughs> Excuse me. So when you are writing a scene like that and you decide you're going to develop this character by letting him sort of talk shop a little mm -hmm. bit. Are you researching technical wine stuff? Are you tasting wines? Are you drinking wine to get yourself in sort of character to write that way? Yes. I don't do a ton of drinking wine while I'm writing. Um, every now and again, I will. What if I'm really you call yourself a writer? <laughs> <laughs> well, my my writing hours are usually very early in the morning until about 3 p.m. So um, I think I would I would need a nap by like noon if I started drinking at, at 7 a.m. Um, but sometimes at night I, I will. Um, but, but mostly I try to write sober. But yes, I did a ton of research. I obviously Google is a writer's best friend, but also I pestered you constantly. I, I would call you and say, what's something that a winemaker would do? I mean, I've got pages and pages of notes just from our phone conversations at the time. And then I go to YouTube and I look and I look up things like day in the life of a winemaker. And I found someone in in upstate New York or somewhere, I could be making that up. But I asked you about the, the this guy and you said, oh yeah, I think I know who that is. And he had this whole series about different seasons at a winery. And it was like gold for me. I just watched hours of video of this guy taking the camera around his winery, talking about pruning, talking about, that's really where I got that scene where they're down there and he's talking about his Riesling and how it's cold and and then I watched him tasting some of it with either a visitor or his dad or something. And, and then I just sort of um, stole it and shaped it into my scene. Um, you know, I didn't steal word for word, but I took his ideas um, and, and the facts. I shouldn't say his ideas. I took the facts of what he presented in the video, what it's like to work there, to taste wine right from those big barrels or whatever. Um, and then wrote, wrote it into a scene. Yeah, I think we need a quote from the scene. I'm going to read for you guys, Paul, um, just so people know what we're really talking about. Yeah. <laughs> wrote it in because it did get pretty nerdy. So I'm going to pull out the part that I thought was the nerdiest as a wine person. <laughs> 
Um, Lifting up her glass, she looked at the Riesling, which was pale yellow and slightly opaque. Her fingers were slender and graceful on the stem. Her fingernails painted a soft pink. Why do you have to keep it so cold? To prevent crystallization of the bitartrates, what we sometimes call wine diamonds. Did you call them wine diamonds or did this YouTube winemaker call them wine diamonds? (laughs) <laughs> that's definitely something that I got from somewhere else. I would never have known anything. Like the part that's the most me in, in what you just read is the part about the fingers and the fingernails. <laughs> like everything Fair. else, everything else in there would have been something from my notes that I researched. Yeah. I just couldn't believe I was reading uh, by tartrates in a romance. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea how to pronounce that, by the way. That's interesting to me. So how do your readers in general, or maybe they don't, I don't know, tell us, do they react to what, when you use wine as a trope? Um, not really. For them that, you know, the, the wine or the setting and that, it's important, but it's not something, you know, they're not reading my books for the wine, obviously, but it's part of the atmosphere. It's part of my brand. It's part of you know, the the promise of a Melanie Harlow book, um, there's usually going to be a lot, uh, lots of wine or cocktails in it. Um, but no, no one's ever said to me, actually, I take that back. I take that back. I do occasionally get comments in my reader group about the wine. And then they'll ask me, um, and I always come right to you and say, what do I tell this reader? She wants to drink a Michigan white or something like that. Uh, and then I'll make the recommendation in my group. But yeah, occasionally I get a more serious wine drinker who is curious about the details or if I, you know, did I completely make it up or is this really a wine that you, they could drink somewhere? That's cool. I mean, it's it's nice that you, I mean, you've spent your entire life for the most part in Michigan. So it makes a lot of sense that you're writing Michigan wine country in particular into into your novels and if anyone ever does reach out and, and wants to drink Michigan wine, they're not exactly distributed nationally. There's a couple larger wineries in Michigan that have some distribution throughout the country. But the great thing is that so many of them can ship direct to consumers. So if your readers ever do want to try some Michigan wine, you can certainly let them know, you know, go on the internet, search for, I don't know, choose a few of your favorite Michigan wineries and let them know that they can probably order direct. I mean, most wineries like that will ship to the the major states. It might be harder if you have readers in like Wyoming or Montana or Hawaii or something like that. <laughs> but if they're, if they're nearby or in a major state uh, with a sizable population, probably, uh, easy to, to get their hands on some Michigan. I have a lot of Michigan, a lot of Michigan readers. Um, and, and for them, like I will say, they are very interested in, I don't know how to put like the experience of the book. So many of them will say, for example, I, the series that the book is from that you just read from is from a series called Cloverleaf Farms. And I've based that on Blackstar Farms. I, the idea of this farm and a winery and a place where you could stay and it's family run. And many of my readers picked up on that and have since said, oh, I went to Black Star Farms and it's so beautiful. Uh, So for them, the experience of connecting to the book with wine and with visiting the place, it's a big deal to them. And I think that's totally 
cool. I think it's so amazing that they would go to this place just to feel, I mean, to have a good time, of course, but also that they get to feel like they're really connected to the story and to the setting, to the series. Black Star Farms is a really cool winery. Isabella, if you're able to right now, maybe just Google that and pull up an image just so you can get a visual. And here's the the another neat thing about that place. So the winemaker who's been there since day one, I believe, a uh, guy named Lee Lutz, very, very experienced. He, Isabella, actually, back in his uh, younger days, was a restaurant guy and was a, a manager at Union Square Cafe in New York City, like when Danny and Paul Bo's Bevin were like still on the floor. So he goes way back with those guys. Before Union Square Cafe, he worked for Neil Rosenthal, also in New York City in distribution. And then uh, from there, went on, made a little bit of wine, I believe, with Paul Bo's Bevin out on Long Island. And then he went on to Italy, where his wife w- was doing uh, some work, and so got to make wine in Italy for a while before going back to work full-time in Michigan as a winemaker. So very experienced winemaker. And Black Star Farms, is, it, it is a, a beautiful place. They, they grow excellent grapes and make really very good wines. I ordered a case actually from them early on in the pandemic when we kind of like just went into lockdown. So yeah, really good stuff. Uh, Melanie, do you do you get up there? Have you been up to that part of Michigan since you started writing novels professionally? And I knew you were going to ask me that. No, I haven't. It's been a really long time. I have one series that is set sort of in and around Traverse City um, and on Old Mission Peninsula. And I have been up there many times when I was younger. Um, and then I have the one set at, at Cloverly Farms, which is fictitious version of Black Star Farms. But no, it I have not been up there since I've been writing about them. Um, and I really want, really want to go. <laughs> so another place that you haven't been is New York wine country. And I've been obviously bending your ear on that subject for a number of years. And I want to you know, do that trying, too. Yeah. Trying to get family to come visit that no one, no one ever does, <laughs> but that's, I brought that upon myself. I'm the only one in the family who has left Michigan and has been in New York for a while now. <laughs> But Isabella, you have traveled throughout New York wine country with me. Melanie, would that be a possibility at all for you ever to go to another state and write about wine country in a place like New York or California or wherever? Or do you have to keep Michigan as your sole brand? I think that is one of the things I could play with. I think you know, Michigan is sort of part of my brand, but I, I would definitely, I mean, there are things from series to series and within a career, you do have to kind of shift and reinvent. I I need to stay in my lane, but I think a series set in, you know, New York wine country would absolutely be still in my lane. And I'm really, really interested. I want to come visit Beacon and all of, you know, Anywhere you want to take me, I really do. I, I am interested in that. Yes. So Isabella, really you you yeah, you've been I want you to sort of paint a picture here. You've been to the major wine grape growing regions throughout New York. Which of them would you suggest could make for the possible best romance fiction? Which setting? I would definitely pick the Hudson Valley for sure. I think it's um it's so close to the city and has a little bit of that feel. Um, 
but historically, it just has really great stories. I mean, you've got Brotherhood Winery, which is America's oldest winery, but doesn't have any grape growing there. It's fascinating. Um, Paul, you know this, but on our trip there, we went downstairs and we heard about this matriarch, Louise, right? Is her name Louise? I think he used to, she like ran Brotherhood Winery through the 60s and the 70s and used to throw these crazy cellar cave parties. Um, and when we walked by the champagne cellar where the bottles were, the lights were flickering. And I was like, Wheezy is throwing a rave right now. She is saying go to us from her grave and I'm here for it. So I think there is some magic in those super old cellars like Brotherhood uh, or Pleasant Valley Wine Company that could get a little supernatural and and in a way where you can believe in, in ghosts and fate and history that is also kind of romantic. That's what I would do. Um, but definitely the Hudson Valley. I mean, you have the beautiful Hudson River. It's accessible. And it's it's close for that kind of meet cute. You know, I told Paul earlier, Melanie, if you want to take this story from me, I'm from <laughs> suburban New Jersey. I've been in, in New York for over 10 years. I had to move back home because of COVID-19 and this pandemic and the state of hospitality and wine. And I, like anybody else who's single in their 30s, is looking to date somebody. Matched with a winemaker for from his family's winery in New Jersey. And had all of the great conversations. And I just thought, this is, this is going to be so cute. You know, we went on this amazing first date. He, we both brought two blind bottles of wine to show each other. Um, you know, and I'm like, classic. I'm from New York. I showed up dressed all in black. I brought healthy <laughs> wine. He brings something kind of, you know gentle and special and he talked a lot about his limestone plot and chardonnay and pinot noir and and really tried to romance me with things like pruning <laughs> and <laughs> it <my> sounds <laughs> exactly like a melanie harlow scene i will tell you that right now yeah, so it didn't I mean, end like one but oh um, shoot shoot i was like, hoping <laughs> I'll give it a better ending. I'll give it a better ending. Thank you. So I think the Hudson Valley in the same way how like this is like suburban New Jersey, there's like there is a, a route there that makes sense because people are also like when they're looking to go to Black Star Farms, they're looking to feel a little bit of that realistic romance. Definitely. Um, which, you know, when you go further and farther outside of metropolitan areas, like you find that like the the story is going to already have happened in the hometown uh, or not that far from it. The town is a really big deal, especially for me when I write, because I, I generally write small town romance and there's a lot of leeway in small town. It doesn't have to really be like a town of 25 people, but it is, it has to be a place where that feels like home, that it's recognizable in that, you know, there's a lot of character in the town itself and there are recognizable characters. Like if you, if you think of Schitt's Creek as a really big inspiration to me, cause it's like, there's so few little settings in there, but you just know exactly what Schitt's Creek is like when you watch that show, even though there's only a couple different, you know, sets. Um, so I think that a small town near, I mean, I don't even know what the towns are in the Hudson Valley. I would have to, I would have to research it. But I love the idea. So I want to ask a few questions about Michigan as another trope and as a part of your brand. But before that, I need to tell you both about Open Local Wine Night. Most local wineries, wherever local is for you, are hanging on through the pandemic. 
Through a combination of loyal wine club members, online orders, and a big dose of creativity, they've been able to stay afloat over the past 10 months when their tasting rooms were either closed or significantly restricted. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lover of local wines, and the wineries that make the wines we all love need our help. The team at Cork Report Media and I hope you'll join us and wine lovers across the country on April 10th, 2021 for Open Local Wine Night, a celebration of exactly that local wine. It's easy to participate. Just buy some local wine, open it on April 10th, and post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with the hashtag OpenLocalWine. It is really as easy as that. And if you're a winery that would like to participate, please visit thecorkreport.us to register. And we'll see you on April 10th. So I expect to see uh, photos and hashtags from you both on Open I'm Local totally Wine doing Night. it. I'm totally doing it. You know, I have my favorite um, Gamay Noir from, um, ah, where's it from? Which winery? Chateau Grand Traverse. Right, Chateau Grand Traverse. Yeah. Yep, great and one. I can get that at my um, at my local market. Isabella, you're going to have to get your hands on some New Jersey wine. You know, based on the um, previous story I just told, I'm going to stick with New York as being my local wine. (laughs) (laughs) I need to know. I need to know. Hold on. I got to go back. I need to know what he was wearing on the date. Oh, I knew what he was going to wear before he. Did it involve plaid or flannel? Of course it did. He's a classic farmer. He showed up in plaid, like some work pants, work boots, and a classic puffy zip-up vest. (laughs) That's about what I thought. Okay. No jacket, 30 degrees outside. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, goodness. Okay, so we grew up spending time on Lake Huron and doing all the the, the Michigan-y up north things. Up north, I'm, I'm using air quotes. So if if I have a brand of my own, it's uh, it, it's making use of this up north thing that you and I, Melanie, both know what that is when we say up north. I think that people in New York know what that is because going to upstate New York is very similar, especially from the city. And I got to say, Long Island wine country, I love you. Beautiful wines. I miss you. I didn't make it out there last year. But it's definitely different from the rest of wine country throughout New York State. The the majority of the grapes that are grown are most definitely in upstate New York. Long Island is an island, so there's limited space there. So recently in my social media posts and in just on this podcast and and sort of just when I talk to people about trying to get them amped up about visiting New York wine country, I like to lean in to this up north vibe. So Melanie, do you, I think you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. 100%. The whole like lake culture that we grew up around. And Isabella, you and I spent time last summer in the Adirondacks. We've been to the Finger Lakes. You definitely know what I'm talking about now too. So, uh, if I didn't, um, you definitely informed me frequently so (laughs) (laughs) well because it's fun and i and i i don't know if everybody sort of really knows what it is and and knows how intertwined sort of these wine grape growing regions are with that culture which is so much because 
of how far away from from big cities these regions are, like the Finger Lakes or like uh, the the Traverse City area in northwestern Michigan. So, Melanie, do you get into any of that up north culture as Michigan as your brand? You know, not on purpose, but for me, I think about it in the back of my head. Up north to me is very relaxed. It's um, not stuffy. So in writing small town romance, I want these characters to feel really relatable. I want my reader to pick it up and be like, oh my God, that is so me. It's like she's in my head. And most of the romance readers that I know and most people that I know are just not stuffy people. They are not getting up in the morning and putting on heels and a suit and going to work. They are, you know, moms or they have jobs. Maybe they're teachers or whatever. I mean, it doesn't really matter what you do because it's it's more of just a, a mindset. Like you said, it's a culture. They think it's very laid back and it's it just you can like take a deep breath and it's there's no pressure. And I think wine has in the past at least had that reputation of being like, well, I don't know anything about it. I wouldn't even know how to enjoy a glass of wine. And I think that's something that some people might have to get over the feeling like they need a bunch of knowledge and information to enjoy a glass of wine. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yes. When, when really, you know, it's, it's not, you can like what you like. It's okay. There are no rules. I mean, Paul would probably say that there are rules, um, and it, when, whenever our family like opens wine or whatever, like he sits there and like swirls it and chews it and like gargles it or whatever it is that he does. And I'm like, can you just stop? I just can't handle it. Like just, I love just brought, yeah. My sister <laughs> has also met Paul and, um, she loves to bring up that when we drink wine, we are the, we're those people that you're describing. Yes. That are kind of <laughs> difficult to be around. <laughs> Like, it's like, yeah, you just, I can appreciate that you guys are getting different things, more things, probably more information out of the wine than I do, but I just want to have a glass of wine and I don't know people. what either of you are talking about. <laughs> when I drink wine, I become more handsome and am a great dancer. Um, I have a question just when you're like, obviously there's wine country around you, so it's an obvious setting, but we are talking about how it is a, it's a, a tricky subject, you know, wine being something where you feel like you have to know something. Does that ever kind of pull you back and say, maybe I don't want to write about wine because it can be a subject that turns people off? I think I'm always very conscious of that in my head. And what I try to do is make it more um, like small D democratic, like the scene that you guys read where the heroine goes to the winery, I didn't want her to sound stupid when she's asking those questions. I wanted her to say like, hey, I'm trying to enjoy this glass of wine, but I'm kind of curious about it. Do I sound dumb? And, and he reassures her like, no, not at all. Like I'm down here making wine day in and day out. So I know this stuff, but um, let me share a little bit about it with you. Here's, here's you know, if you're interested here's what to look for, or here's what, you know, what do you smell? What do you taste? Um, so I do try to keep it, um, fun and interesting, but not stuffy. Like I never mention the price of a glass of wine. I don't ever want characters to be like, Oh, I want this $200 bottle of blah, 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 because I don't think it's necessary to spend a lot of money. I think wine, you can enjoy it at every <laughs> price point, just like romance. 
So um, you're not name checking any any wines? Never. Mm-mm. I think no. that's an important thing to mention. Um, in fact, my editor and I, I always forget if I need to capitalize the name of a grape because sometimes I'll be like, oh, I ordered a glass of Pinot Noir and I'm like, shoot, do I capitalize the P and the N? Because I forget what the rule is. I think there are, are some, um, like if I'm saying I ordered a glass of Bordeaux, I capitalize the B. But if I'm just referring to a grape, like I ordered a Merlot, is that a grape? Did I make that up? That's a grape. Okay. Yeah, and what, but what it doesn't have to be. There's not really a hard and fast rule. It's it's different in any different publication. Most of the times you'll see the grapes capitalized. Right. But the major publication that I can think of that does not capitalize grapes is the New York Times. Yes. My editor always changes them and she puts the name of the grape lowercase. But if I refer to a region or something, it, she'll leave it capitalized. Sure, because it's a proper yes. noun, right? Yes, yeah. I fully support <laughs> your editor. <laughs> so so I, I think you're not that you're not name checking people because it does it. Then it becomes polarizing for people that are in uh, in that field. You know, whether it's you know baking or maybe they have a furniture shop or maybe they're in wine like we are. As soon as you start to name check. Um, we go on high alert and we lose the sense of the story and start becoming. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that was a big problem with um, a book that came out in our circle, Paul, uh, called Sweet Bitter that really turned off a lot of hospitality and wine people because of how it was written and how um, close to factual it was trying to be about wine and hospitality um, that it lost us as readers. We became not so nice. <laughs> so was that, I should know the answer to this, but I don't, was that fiction or was it more of a memoir? Paul? Yeah, it is <laughs> fiction. It's definitely fiction, but okay. it is, there, there's plenty of memoir-ish okay. stuff in there, but not, not entirely. I remember re- when that book came out, I did read it and there was a lot of talk about this particular, the particular male character, the a bartender in the book, and that, for example, that character, for example, was totally made up. She said because everybody wanted to know who was it based on, and she said yeah. I made him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there, it's just a different style of writing. There are a lot of romance authors that name drop a lot of, let's say, fashion brands, and. Unless I'm doing it to make a point about someone's really like fancy high heels, like if I'm saying, oh, you know, she's wearing her Jimmy Choo's or something, I really just don't ever do it because like you said, I think it's distracting. I think it pulls you out of the, that page turning narrative and makes you think about, you know, Jimmy Choo sandals or whatever it is. But I can see why someone like that author probably did it was to try for credibility. Like it, it she thought maybe it would lend a more realistic, you know, note to her story. But everybody's everybody's different. It's just my preference that I I don't name a lot of brands or people. So I want to sort of before we we're coming up on an hour before we and then there's a few more things that I want to talk about. I want to ask you both 
to describe a couple different experiences that you each find to be uniquely, again, I'm doing the air quotes, up north. Because I think that when it comes to these wine grape growing regions in in northern Michigan and upstate New York, sorry, Long Island, again, I love you, but uh, we're, we're talking mostly about upstate today. One of the things that makes wine less intimidating is when you can go to the region and just have a lot of fun. So I really lean into talking about that up north culture when it comes to drinking these wines. And when I bring people up there, I try to coincide it not with just constantly tasting and drinking, but also sort of embracing the fact that you are so far away from any major city and you're in these unique backwoods areas. So Melanie, let's start with you. And then Isabella, what are what what are a couple of things that you when you think of up north, what are some activities that you like to do for fun? So I love to write into books scenes with canoes and rowboats. I don't know what it is, but I find myself writing in almost every single book, like some sort of scene with a canoe or a rowboat. And I don't know if I just picture it as being sort of a romantic thing to do, but it also seems very up north Michigan thing to do. Anything on the lake um, to me is a very up north Michigan thing you know, things in the woods, a hike through the woods. Um, I've mentioned Old Mission Peninsula, which has that beautiful, um, those trails up to the lighthouse. I love a lighthouse. I write a lighthouse into <laughs> every book that I can where it would make sense. So I have some little pet things that end up going into my books. Um, and wineries are, are one of them. I love an orchard. Um, I, there's often when two characters are alone in an orchard in a Melanie Harlow book, like things are going to happen. I just think that they're beautiful and romantic. Um, but as far as like the up North Michigan things, I, I always think of the water also like a scene. I love a scene where it's snowing and there's like a fire in a fireplace. Um, it's just also cozy and romantic to me. Excellent. Isabella. I mean, I don't have a lot of experience up northing, but, <laughs> but I would say it's like the 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 doing nothing. It's like the sitting in someone's company and just watching water. Usually, you know, whether it's a lake or or like a small river or something like that. I think, like when you went straight to canoe. I mean, I was thinking about our um, our kayak day, Paul, with a. Up in the Adirondacks, so I think it's it's the kind of like the doing nothing, the taking in the rippling of the water and somebody's company, and mm -hmm. like big open skies, clear skies, whether it's cold, whether it's warm, um, and being content in in that state because it's hard for a city person like me to find content in doing nothing. Very difficult. <laughs> That's interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, as a writer too, because in certain categories of romance or genres of romance, like what I write, the um, what's driving the, the book forward, the momentum forward is the relationship between the two people. I don't write plane crashes and explosions and kidnappings and, you know, really shocking plot twists. So they're going to be quieter books, but it's, it's the conversation that they're having while they're sitting outside in that kayak or watching the sunset over Lake Michigan 
um, or walking by the creek or whatever. The, those are those are background things, but they're important um, because of the conversations that are that are taking place. Great stuff. I want to. I'm, I'm just going to share one one little up north thing that I like to do as an activity, and that's eat ice cream. And <laughs> they're both in New York and in Michigan. I mean, there are so many of the old school ice cream places. And it's, of course, because we, there is so much agriculture and so many dairy farms in particular that we have just such delicious ice cream everywhere. And I just love the, the old mom and pop ice cream places, and you can find them everywhere throughout Michigan and, and New York State. So in the future, when you're both uh, talking about your up north favorite activities, I've been using uh, the hashtag up north shit. <laughs> which I really like, or shout out to Megan the Stallion, hashtag real up north shit. <laughs> so, so before we finish, we, we got Valentine's Day coming up and we're going to try to get this podcast released before the weekend. So Melanie Harlow, ideas for people to celebrate Valentine's Day during the pandemic. So again, I don't think it has to be a big flashy thing. Obviously, none of us can go out dancing. We can't have, you know, we can't go to a concert or I guess you could go to a movie or whatever. But I think the best things are the activities that allow you to have a conversation in a quiet spot. So even if it's just setting up one you know, corner of your house. If you've got a fireplace, build a fire. If you um, have kids, put them in the basement. Just kidding. I don't know. But just someplace quiet that lends itself to conversation. Splurge. If you're going to splurge, instead of on the, the concert tickets or the big dinner out, get a nice bottle of wine and some, I don't know, nice cheese or snacks or anything and, or cook a meal together. I think cooking together is a fantastic romantic activity and it can be done right at home in your kitchen. Cool. Isabel, yeah. any ideas for, uh, for activities? I mean, I'm the most single person I know, so I'm going to opt out of Valentine's Day this well, year. What should, what should the single folks be doing this weekend? Doing whatever they love to do all the time. And giving zero Fs. <laughs> you know? We should not we should not be hard on ourselves uh anymore. Not just like during this time, but like anymore. Stop Ever, being on any day. Agreed. One hundred percent. If you want to do nothing, if you want to do something, if you want to think about it as something you do special for that day, uh, I just don't think you should care so much. Um, and that's what you're also trying to say for people that are celebrating on purpose is also don't care so much, just care about being with your person. Right. Make a little time to, you know, pay attention. And maybe that's yourself. You say, I care about myself. I'm giving myself a little time. Cook your favorite meal, drink your favorite wine, take a bath, read a book. Like I can't imagine if I was going to throw a Valentine's Day thing for myself, I would take a, my, a book and curl up with a big blanket and just no one would bother me. That would be perfect. <laughs> Okay. Isabella, where can people follow you on social media? I fits I F I T Z um, on Instagram and sloppy Sam on TikTok. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> Melanie Harlow, uh, anything to plug coming up? 
Yeah, I have a book release coming up on February 22nd. Um, but if you want to read the most recent one, it is called Make Me Yours. And it is available on Amazon. It is in Kindle Unlimited, so you can even borrow it if you are in the Kindle Unlimited subscription program. Um, and it's it's a really fun, wintry, cozy, sexy romance. And your social media handles are? I'm most active on Facebook because I'm an old lady and that's where all the old ladies hang out. So I have a Facebook reader group called Harlow's Harlots that um, I'm in there every day interacting. I'm not awesome at Instagram, but I am there and it's Melanie underscore Harlow. And I don't go anywhere near TikTok. <laughs> I would embarrass myself. I, you know what? I would love to figure it out. But right now when I go there and there's some people on there that are just so funny and so entertaining, I just don't have any good ideas yet. Same as writing a book. Like without the good idea, I'm just not going to do it yet. I'm going to wait. I'm going to observe. I'm going to research. <laughs> and then, then maybe I will embarrass my kids by giving it a try. That's the best thing you can do is just let it entertain you. And then the content will come to you. It's not up to you to make it. There's already tons of people doing the content creation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's some people are so good at it. It's like, whoop. I think um, I'll just sit here and be entertained. But <laughs> Drink it's some just wine. Like, you said, like you can Google it, you can read all of these other people who are great at it, and eventually you'll be able to work it into your own work. That would be the goal. I would love that. I believe in you. Thank you. <laughs> right on. All right. Thank you, everyone, listeners. Thank you to Dave Miller, as always, for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. Have a wonderful Valentine's Day weekend, everyone. And Isabella and Melanie, thank you both. See you and talk to you very soon. Thanks, Paul. My pleasure.